You'll see, you'll find it, if you've got a Bible, you'll find it on page 765. And we're going to look from verse 4 onwards. Now, let me introduce this by asking if you've ever, if you understand uh, what I would say, what, you, what I mean by the conversation. Sorry to bring the West Wing into this again, but we were watching the West Wing last night, and with a new president, uh, or standing for president, one of the characters in the West Wing, whose um, jo- name called Josh, is campaign managing this, this candidate, and he's asked, have you had the conversation with him yet? Well, the conversation is when someone says to you they would like to talk. It's not, let's just have a wee chat. It's, we need to talk. And you know that's going to be uncomfortable because they insist on seeing you on your own. I'm not talking about a parent calling a child into the living room, kind of sit down while I give you a row. Come here, we need to talk. Not like that. I'm not even talking about the, I've got to tell you something, it's really, really bad news. Someone splitting up or someone announcing they've got cancer. I'm talking about having a conversation with somebody that is deep and serious, a talk that you know may hurt you, not because it is angry, but because it goes so deep. And as we look at this passage this morning, I believe that it is God saying, I want to talk to you, but are you prepared to listen? Because this goes really, really deep. This is what the Bible does. Look at that, those verses, Hebrews 4 verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. (coughs) It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. That's what God's Word does. It exposes, goes right into our very inmost being, and shows us things that sometimes we didn't even know were there. God speaks to us in such a way that we've never told anyone else, but He knows precisely what is affecting us and what we think. I think that the most uncomfortable conversations we have are those which expose, and especially those which expose our wounds. Sometimes we are very, very wounded people. Some people, you can see that, literally. You see it in their face. You see it in their posture. You see it in the way that they behave. But some of you are immensely good at, you have this mask on you that everyone thinks you're whole, that everyone thinks you're healthy. But I believe that most of us, if not all of us, and I include myself in this, are wounded people psychologically, emotionally, internally, We learn to cope. We grow a kind of scab over our wound so that it is not exposed, it does not hurt, and we can cope with it. Occasionally, sure, like any scab, we pick away at it. But what seems really horrible is when it is penetrated, when it is ripped off. And I think that's what God does to us, that God wounds, but only to bind up. We read that As we're reading through Isaiah, it just so happens that Isaiah 30, we read that just now. And I want to say this to you. 
that there may be things within you that you know are deep and really hurt, and you don't want them to be exposed, and you don't think they can ever be healed, and you just want to forget them, you just want them to go away, but they can't go away because they're in you. And you run from them, and you try to hide, and you don't think that anyone can deal with them. The last thing you're going to do, you're not one of these people who's going to open up about everything. All the doctors in the world, and all the psychiatrists in the world, and all the psychologists in the world are not going to help you, but God can. And I think this passage shows how that happens. It's a passage that is mostly poetry. If you're interested in the background, it's the second scroll that Jeremiah writes. (coughs) Jeremiah was a prophet. We know that he's writing after December 604 BC because there's a reference in it where the people are already in exile. Um, It is very similar. Parts of this second scroll, which go up to chapter 10, verse 25, are very similar to the earlier uh, scroll which we've been looking at up till now. But let's uh, go on to look at the first few verses. Verses 4 to 7. Let me read these words, and we're just going to go through the whole chapter. This is God speaking. Say to them, this is what the Lord says, when men fall down, do they not get up? When a man turns away, does he not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. The first question is very simple. Why do you turn away? This is what God asks. Why do you turn away? What is wrong with us? The most significant part of what is wrong with us in terms of our wound is that we do not return to God. Now, it doesn't make sense. It's like saying, I'm sick, so I'm not going to go to the doctor. Although some of you will understand that because some of you feel sick and you kind of hope it will go away. You hope it's not too serious. You don't want to go to the doctor because the doctor might tell you something you don't want to know. (coughs) So you bravely shoulder on. I think there are many people who within themselves are deeply wounded, are deeply hurt, find life really, really hard, but the last person you would ever turn to is God because you think God would reject you, because you think God's going to tell you bad news, because actually you don't want to know. You want the wound just to be covered up, not to be exposed, and not to be dealt with. The words turn, return, or repent are all used in these verses, and they're all translations of the same Hebrew word, which just simply does mean to repent, to turn around. And God is simply saying this, why why do you turn away from me? Why don't you turn around and come back to me? Which is what repentance is. You'll notice that lots of people say things like, I would believe in God if God did this, if God came to me. And God's return question, if you like, is, why don't you come to me? 
He uses nature to explain it. Isaiah 1 verse 3, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. (coughs) The natural world can be used to illustrate God's message in lots of ways. He mentions the stork. It's a play on words. Remember, this is a poem. The stork is the Hebrew word hasidah, and it comes from the same root as the Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I remember your steadfast love. I remember your devotion. And he says, look, the stork, the hesida, she knows her appointed seasons, but my people don't seem to know their time, their season. Now, it's a very simple lesson. It's a very powerful lesson. What God is saying to you this morning is simply this. If you fall, what do you do? You pick yourself up. If you go the wrong way, what do you do? You turn back. You want to try and find the right, the right way, uh, unless you're a man and you've got your wife in the car and you don't want to tell her that you've gone the wrong way, so you'll carry on for a long time until you're really lost, and then you have to admit you didn't really know where you were going in the first place. But leaving aside that, if you go the wrong way, you turn back. Why is it then that when you spiritually fall or miss the way, you don't do the same thing? It's not natural. People, horses, and birds says Jeremiah, they return. Someone who goes away from home is expected to return. I'm not sure how many times I ran away from home when I was a wee boy. Not that many. But uh, I remember my brother, one of my brothers, was very regularly heading off. And boy, did he head off. I mean, he took the tent. He took the whole thing. Away, I'm gone. And he started marching up the road. And I used to think, oh, that's terrible. What if he never comes back? And my mom and dad said, ah, we'll see him. He'll be back for his tea. And he always was because you come back. You come back home. (coughs) God is saying, how come the stork returns? How come the thrush and the birds, they know to return, but my people don't return to me? It's not just even that we wander like lost sheep, but look at verse 6. It says, I've listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of the wickedness saying what I have done. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. He's saying, they're like that horse that goes thundering down, and if you wanted to stop it, you couldn't stop it. This is not one single instance of departure from God, but it's a continued slippage. In the words, and you forgive me for quoting this, but in the words of the police, every step you take, every move you make is away from God's. It's almost as though we've got a disease. We can't stop it. And God says, why? Why? Can you answer that question? Why do you cling to deceit, says God? Why do you cling to delusive beliefs? The trouble is not that God is not listening. Look at verse 6. Sometimes we say, oh, God's not listening to me. God's not listening. I have listened attentively. The question is not, God, why are you not listening? The problem is in what we are saying or what we are not saying. You see, we don't say, what have I done? I suspect most of us say, what have they done? Or even what has God done? (coughs) But in Job, Job, God speaks to Job at the end of all that questioning and says, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, with everything that he had said, said, I listen to your questions, and I repent, and I return to you. 
There are some of you who are almost smug in the arrogance of thinking that it's okay to say to God, why aren't you speaking to me? Why aren't you talking to me? Why don't you show yourself to me? You are questioning God, but today the table is turned and God comes to you and He questions you and He just simply says, why don't you return? What are you playing at? Why don't you return? Second question, verses 8 to 12, how can you say that you are wise? Let's read. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped. Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. <coughs> they will be brought down when they are punished. There are those who think that they are wise because they have a Bible. But salvation doesn't come from the number of Bibles you have. I have a, a, a shelf through in that office there that it's all Bibles. I've got loads of Bibles. It doesn't even come from how well you know your Bible. It comes from how you respond to it. This section is about people who falsely handle the Word of God, who use their cleverness to trim the Bible or to reject it altogether. And whether it's perverting the Scripture or discarding it altogether, it's the same thing. And you'll notice that the accusation is specifically against the church. It's against God's own people, and it's against the teachers in the church, people like me. These are teachers who are responsible for right teaching but they've corrupted the teaching itself while claiming to interpret it. Why? Because it suits them. Look at verse 10. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of how people who teach God's Word abuse it to suit their own ends. And there are two current examples. I don't genuinely want to offend anybody in it, but um, I, I think these are uh, accurate examples. I think for, let me, there are two ends of the Christian spectrum, if you like. One is what we call the prosperity gospel. The view that God just always wants you to be healthy and wealthy. There is a, over the past few years, there have been a series of what have been termed revivals going on always in the same place, the southern U.S., and uh, the latest one is one called the Bay Revival. Uh, it is 24-7 on God TV. Uh, you watch it. It's the same as all the others. The people are hyped up. Leaders endorse it because they don't want to quench the Spirit, and I understand that. You see all these people being very passionate about Jesus, and you think that's got to be a good thing. But this is now, I think, the fifth of these kind of things. You don't want to be a Pharisee opposing the next move of the Spirit. It's interesting, I asked some questions about it, and I was publicly rebuked and told that not only would cursing be brought upon myself, but upon my family. And I find it astonishing, the level of manipulation and distortion that occurs when people do that. In fact, one lady said 
claimed in Jesus' name that she was putting a curse on my computer that it wouldn't work. Well, it was an apple, so it's still working. But it's, you just think, wait a minute, what are we doing? Because here's something about us as Christians. Sometimes we are way too gullible, and we don't, because we don't want to be judgmental, and a lot of us are judgmental, and we do things that are wrong. That's true. But because we don't want to be seen as judgmental, we keep silent, and we don't dare call things for what they are. You know what people say? God is with us. God is with us. Didn't you feel the presence of the Lord? It doesn't matter what was said. It doesn't matter what was done. You've got Christians who will defend a man like Todd Bentley, who says God told him to kick a woman in the face so that she would be healed. And Christians go, well, how how do we know that God's not doing that? Wake up. What do you mean, how do you know that God hasn't told him to kick someone in the face? Don't you read the Bible? Oh, but can't you feel the presence of the Lord? Uh, No. How do you know it's the presence of the Lord? No one dares say, actually, maybe God is not present with us. Maybe he has left us. Maybe this is all just a sham. That's one example. Another example is this, is that in Scotland today, right now this morning, there are people who are standing up to interpret the Bible and who will spend their time telling people to be good and telling their people why the Bible is not really true. They are reinventing the Word of God. Now, I think this happens also for the same reason, because to teach people the truth would be too uncomfortable. A dead church, and Scotland is full of dead churches, would be one where the people have an unwritten contract with the minister. It goes like this. You teach us, but not too long. Let us out by 12. You teach us, but not anything that would embarrass us. I was once asked to do a wedding, and the people didn't know me, obviously, because they said, we don't want you to preach anything that would embarrass our friends. I said to them, well, I have no idea who your friends are, but I'm going to teach the Bible, and if that embarrasses them, too bad. That's the risk you take if you're wanting me to do your wedding. (coughs) There is, we've done this in this country, and it's a big temptation. I understand it as a temptation. Don't say these things. Just say things that people will cause, will say, oh, that was really nice, that was really good, that was really funny, or, or whatever. But Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, to woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. 1 Timothy 1.7 says this, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Being a teacher of God's Word is a high calling, but it comes with its own temptations, not least money and popularity. Do your best, says Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, (coughs) a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Because that was the complaint here, isn't it? They did not handle the word of God rightly. And you'll notice the consequences of this. We do not even know how to blush. We mock God, we turn away from God, we reinterpret God's Word to suit ourselves, and we can't even blush. There's no consciousness of the wrong that we are doing. But verse 9 says, there will be dismay. We are trapped. There's a psychological brokenness. We take on the Word of God, and the Word of God is like a hammer and an anvil, as Jeremiah will say later on. We try to break it but the Word of God will not be broken. 
I think it's a really, really, really important thing for us that God asks, firstly, why? Why don't you return to me? And he asks, secondly, why do you think you're wise? Why do you think that you're so clever that you can do away with me? Now, we'll go on to see God's solution to that, but I want us to sing in Psalm 52. <coughs> the words will come up on the screen. Uh, the tune is Petersham, and it's again the same question. Why do you boast of wickedness, you man of power and might? Why boast all day, O you who are disgraceful in God's sight? We'll stand and we'll sing uh, the whole of the psalm, the tune, Petersham, and Colin will lead us in singing this. Why do you boast of wickedness, you man of power and might? Why boast all day, O you who are disgraceful in God's sight? You plot destruction with your tongue, so razor sharp and keen. You always work deceitfully, you love things vile and mean. You do not take delight in truth, but in what's false and wrong. You love all harmful evil words, O oh, you deceitful tongue. But God will surely bring you down to ruin and disgrace. He will uproot you from your tent and from your dwelling place. He'll snatch you from the land of life and carry you away. The righteous seeing this will fear, then they will laugh and say, this is the man who for his strength on God did not rely. He trusted in his wealth and power to raise himself on high. But I am like an olive plant in God's house growing free. I trust in God's unfailing love to all eternity. I'll praise you ever for your deeds. My hope is in your name. And in the presence of your saints, I will extol your fame. Please be seated. And let's go on to look at verse 13 to verse 17. And it's a question that the people ask. 
Why are we sitting here? I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine, there'll be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Why are we sitting here? Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against Him. We hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there was only terror. The snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan. At the neighing of their stallions, the whole land trembles. They've come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all who live there. Why are we sitting here? It's a question that God's people ask because they realize what's happening. When it talks about the horses coming from Dan and, and so on, it's talking about the enemy coming from the north. It's talking about there not being a physical harvest. And it's talking about, as we shall see, there not being a spiritual harvest. There is drought. There is panic. We fear the future. What is going to happen? We would like to sit still, but we can't sit still because things change. People change. Events move on. Change and decay and all around I see. In verse 15, there's these incredibly sad words. We hoped for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing, but there was only terror. They're experiencing covenant cursing, not covenant blessing. They hoped for good. They hoped for peace, but it's not happening. Venomous snakes from the north. It's not a Hollywood horror flick. It's a symbol of the two enemies that were going to come, that had come down from Israel from the north because there's an indication that the people were already in exile in Babylon. Why are we sitting here? I think sometimes we find ourselves emotionally paralyzed, psychologically paralyzed, intellectually paralyzed, maybe even physically paralyzed because we're afraid. We're afraid of what's been. We're afraid of what will be. We're all dried up and withered inside. There is no life within us. We fear. And that's the situation that the people are in. Because what happens with our wounds is this. Your wounds don't get buried and stay buried. Your wounds fester. The disease spreads throughout your whole body. And you get to old age and you are embittered, and you are angry, and you are cold, and you are frustrated, and it seems as though there is no cure. The last verses, verses 18. Oops. Can you move it on, please, Robert? I don't know what's happened there. Um, verses 18 to 22. I'll just read them anyway. Oh, my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me, Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Verse 18, the words of Jeremiah, my comforter and sorrow, my heart is faint within me. They express his distress. If you ever see a preacher who talks about the suffering or the wrath of God or hell, 
or judgment or anything like that, and he does so with an element of glee. That preacher is a false prophet because Jeremiah is heartbroken at what happens to the people. He's not saying, ah, they're getting what they deserve. He's heartbroken for the people. And in that, he reflects the compassion of God. Verse 19, the people cry out. They believe they had an unconditional promise of God's presence always. Now they were in exile, and they're saying, where's the Lord? Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? They feel bitterness that God is no longer there, and God turns to them, and He answers their question, and He says, you provoked me. That's what happened. Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? 1 Samuel 2, 3, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares to Eli, far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me I will be disdained. They, I will disdain, rather. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus says, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Revelation 2, 4, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There is a glorious teaching in the Bible which says that once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. That says once God's hand lays hold of you, God's hand stays hold of you. But there are Christians who misinterpret that to think, doesn't matter what I do, I can do whatever I want, the church can do whatever it wants. There are denominations which say we've got a sound constitution and a, a sound theology and a sound this and a sound that, and they're as dead as can be, and God will walk away from them. Why? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images and their worthless foreign idols? Calvin says this, speaking on this passage, the prophet no doubt expresses here the complaints of the people on finding themselves overwhelmed with so many and so great evils without receiving any aid from heaven. For hypocrites ever expostulate or argue with God. And as they consider they are unjustly chastened, they reject every instruction and avail it as much as they can. In short, they seek stupidity that they may deceive themselves with vain delusions. You want to see stupidity, then go and watch a group of Christians trying to psych themselves up into being, the Lord is with us, the Lord is with us, the Lord is with us. And we will believe the most inane and stupid things when God says, I'm not, what do you think I am? You think, you know, you don't know who I am. That's God's complaint with us. And so verse 20, the great lament. Listen, these words are incredible. The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. It's referring to a literal drought as well, I think. Two, they had two harvests in Israel, the field crops in May and June and the summer crops in July and August, and God is saying, the people are saying, the harvest is past, the summer has ended. These two, they've both gone, and we haven't got any food. How are we going to survive for the winter? And spiritually, what's being said here is this, there's a spiritual drought. We're longing for God, longing for Christ, longing for renewal. And the people are crying out, but we're not saved. There's a sense here of wasted opportunity. The harvest has passed. The summer has ended. Marvelous old Scottish preacher called James Stewart, preaching on this, said, there are few things more pitiful in life 
than the sight of an old man sinking down into his grave in a condition of stolid unconcern about the salvation of his soul. To see an older person who has heard the gospel, unconcerned about their soul, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now, the question then for me and for you becomes simply, are we saved? And if not, why not? And what does that mean? Is it because we've never heard of a Savior? Uh, Do we not recognize our own need? Jeremiah mourns, verse 21, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Literally, he says, and you, you couldn't translate it in current English this way, I am black. And he's not referring to skin color. He's just referring to the horror that he feels. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. Are you not crushed at the state of the Scottish nation and the British nation today? Are you not crushed at the state of the city? Are you not heartbroken? When did you last cry? When did you last weep for your neighbors and for your friends and for your family? When did you last weep for yourself? Because here's the question, the great question, verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? Actually, three questions. Is there no balm? Is there a balm in Gilead? Is there a doctor? Why is there no healing for the wound of my people? Gilead, Genesis 37, 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Gilead was an area east of Jerusalem, well known for its medicinal herbs. It was well wooded, it was rugged, and from that came an aromatic resin, which was a soothing ointment, and it gave a very pleasant smell. And the answer, is there no balm in Gilead? That's like asking, are there no coals in Newcastle? Are there no pies in Dundee? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's saying, of course there's balm in Gilead. It's a rhetorical question. Is there a doctor in Gilead? Of course, that's where the doctors come from. So what's being asked? Why then, the key question, why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? If there is balm in Gilead, if there is a doctor, why is there no healing for the wound of my people? And the answer is because the wound of my people goes far, far deeper than any balm can cure. There's a sickness which strikes at the heart. He loved her foul, that he might make her fair. An old poet said, talking about Christ, the bride of Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings from Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. This is what is being said here. My people are crushed. We are broken. We are not just psychologically bruised. We are shattered. We are battered. We are, there are things in us that are so deep and so hurtful. We can't face them ourselves, and we daren't, and we don't want any other human being to see them. We don't want to look at them ourselves. Is there a doctor? Is there medicine? Is there a balm in Gilead? The answer that Jeremiah points to and that the New Testament declares is that Jesus Christ is the doctor. 
and there's tenderness. Christ probes deep into our hearts. Christ probes deep into our pride. Christ probes deep into our guilt and our selfishness and our lusts and our fears. And it is immensely uncomfortable, but He does so with great gentleness. He doesn't expose these things to destroy you. He exposes them to heal. The poet Matthew Arnold said this, He took the suffering human race, he read each wound and weakness clear, and stuck his finger on the place and said, Thou hurtest here and here. We have NHS 24, on call 24-7. Christ is on call 24-7. You do not need to come to Jesus at a specific time, at a specific place. You don't need to work up to it. You don't need to buy it. It is absolutely free because He paid the price. So why are we not healed? Because we don't ask. Because there is no repentance. Because we don't take the medicine. Because as this passage has shown us, the tendency of the human heart is to depart from God. You will walk out of this place, and although you may or may not have been affected by what is said, you may be angry, you may be moved, you may be lots of different things, you will walk out of this place, and your heart will be telling you all the time, get away, get away, get away. It's not that God is chasing you away. It's you are running away. The lure of worldliness, false confidence, false teaching, procrastination, that is, I'll leave it till later, I'll leave it till later, I'll leave it till later. But the summer, the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. You can't do that with God. You can't say, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. You go back to verse 4 in this chapter, and it just simply says, no one asks, what have I done? And that is the question I want you to ask. I want you to pray to God and say, Lord, what have I done? I want you to be aware of where you are at. I want you to be aware of how deeply you have wounded and hurt and offended God and how deeply He loves you and how much He has forgiven you. Why are we not healed? Why are you not a Christian? Is it because God is not calling you? Is it because God has not shown you? Is it because your mind is so great that God hasn't given you enough? That doesn't make sense. I'll tell you why you're not a Christian because there's a wound deep within that you do not want exposed, and you don't want to face up to it. And does God strike you dead? Does God hit you with lightning? No, that's not what happens. God just simply says, why? Why don't you turn to me? And it may be that some of us here, we are Christians, and we know we've got all the jargon, and we've got everything else. And it's almost as though, as though God is saying to us, I don't care I don't care about the jargon. I don't care about everything else. But see that wound that you've got, that you're covering up, that you're hiding. Oh, yes, outwardly, everyone thinks you're a wonderful Christian. They all think that you've got it sussed and you've got it there. But God says, I know. And you know that I know. You can't fool me. You can't pretend with me. And God says, I know this will hurt. I know you don't want this exposed. But there's a balm in Gilead. I watch Christians, and I'm like this myself in so many ways, so self-sufficient, so sure, so certain, but not really. I think we have to learn to trust the Lord. We don't negotiate with God. You don't sit down with your doctor and say, well, by the way, I read this on Wikipedia or whatever about my disease. 
You come to the great physician and you say, Lord, heal me. I want to be healed. I, the God of the Bible is not a God for whom anyone here would come today and say, Lord, I want to be healed. I want to be saved. And he would say, no, go away. He's not going to do that. So why are we not healed? Because we don't come. And I just ask you very, very simply to come. Now, I'm going to ask you to reflect upon this and think upon this for a couple of minutes. And as as we do so, this is a bit unusual, I know. I, I, I want to play... Uh, a song I would love to be able to sing it, but no one here has the ability to sing it like Paul Robson. There's a song called There is a Bam in Gilead, and uh, we'll play that through the speaker system. It just lasts a couple of minutes, and as you listen to it and listen to the words, just ask the Lord to heal you, and then after that, Chris is going to come and pray with us. So, if we can play that just now, Johnny, please. Pray like Paul, go home and tell your neighbor. 